Hey guys, my name is Alex, and you're listening to the Thousand Movie Project Podcast. It's the 1st of November as I'm recording this, and it was my hope that I would be able to do some Halloween-related stuff on the podcast all throughout October, but the fates did not allow that for reasons we will cover in one of the upcoming episodes. But I can tell you that since it is the 1st of November, I spent a few minutes... I spent a few minutes on the toilet this morning doing my favorite first-of-the-month ritual, which involves browsing the new slate of monthly deals on Kindle. If you're wondering about the baby noise, it's that I'm scripting this episode while sitting at Pasión del Cielo, and there's a woman here with four kids. The youngest one is in a stroller, and that one, the one in the stroller, is losing his mind, weeping but also shrieking, and it's the kind of shrieking that would threaten crystal wear. So of course it's getting under my skin, especially because his mom doesn't seem all that bothered by it, but um, this is also the sort of situation where I think I, ki- I make myself anxious because I'm trying not to look bothered even though I, like i'm very bo- i'm like i'm disrupted i bend over backwards to try to, to try to seem like i'm totally cool with it i start going above and beyond with what i call my performative patience like for instance i'm super jumpy if you know me personally and we have hung out in the flesh you have probably scared me made me scream in a bar because you said hello too suddenly or you touched my shoulder before saying hi i am embarrassingly skittish and this is going to sound super fucking 2020 but like every time a black or brown skinned person startles me inadvertently i'm like fuck they think i'm racist and scared of them which maybe they do but maybe they don't he says with a hopeful inflection one of the quotes that's brought me most solace is david foster wallace saying you will stop worrying what other people think about you when you realize how seldom they do dude which reminds me i had a college professor he was teaching approaches to literature and he made us buy for class his own <laughs> self-published novels and 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 translations that he had written of his favorite hungarian poet and then we had to discuss them every day in class but meanwhile <laughs> all while he is supposedly teaching us <laughs> about his own work he would tell us that they sucked <laughs> which they did his his work was genuinely awful but he would go on and on about how his force his forcing us to read it was the only way he would ever find a readership for his work because the work is so bad and he said it in what sounded like self-deprecation but it had this venomous edge to it it's a hard nuance of voice to communicate he would tell us each day about how much he sucked and he would voice that lament his shtick of the beleaguered old author every single day about how much he sucks and what a failure he is and his wife doesn't love him and he has to masturbate he's in his 60s isn't it pathetic he would also tell this story all the time of when he was a teenager and his mom worked at a hair salon and he wasn't allowed to like go off on his own during the summer so he would have to just hang out in the basement of this hair salon and what he would do to pass the time is he would masturbate into a broken toilet and he also told us one time that like he had recently he had just recently learned that men could lactate because he was taking an antidepressant that caused him to lactate <laughs>
anyway, I go and I mention this to my therapist one day, and my therapist is like, yeah, this guy sounds like a narcissist. And I said, no, but he's only saying bad things about himself, about how everybody hates him. He's not, like, self-aggrandizing. And my therapist goes, yeah, he might be talking shit about himself, but one of the seeds to believing that everybody hates you is the self-aggrandizing delusion that anyone is even thinking about you. So, I don't know. The reason for that digression is, you know, I, maybe I'm being self-aggrandizing to think that anybody gives a fuck about the jumpy white guy at the coffee shop. But whenever it does happen, uh, that I flinch because somebody did something innocuous to startle me, and I'm afraid that it might be interpreted as, like, a racial bias as opposed to just frayed nerves, I then try to do some kind of gesture, like, like you know, nod and smile to them as I'm leaving, or if we make eye contact, maybe I'll hit them with a, have a good one. Although maybe, maybe this effort to correct the bad impression is itself kind of wrong-headed. Incidentally, when I worked at the cheese... Um, I, I, when I worked at the Spaghetti Gulag, I was a host. So I was up there at the front of the restaurant all the time and, like, ushering people to their seats and giving them menus and shit. And in some ways, I, th I think, everyone, maybe everyone thinks this of their job, but in some ways I think it was the most emotionally taxing position in the restaurant because you were dealing with people who were hungry and they loved this restaurant but now they've got to wait for a table and you see this happen all the time even though they love the restaurant and they drove here for a meal on their special day they 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 get frustrated and cannot seem to understand that other people feel the same way that other people like this place so much that there's a waiting list and so they sit in the lobby and they get angrier and angrier as they're having to wait. And also, sitting in the lobby at the cheese... At, at the ice cream bungalow? Sitting in the lobby at the ice cream bungalow somehow distorts people's perception of time. If they wait for five minutes, they come up and tell you that they've been waiting for 15. And I understand the feeling. When you're standing in a crowded lobby and you're hungry, time does seem to slow down. But there was always this touchy issue where, like... <laughs> I have your name right here on the computer, and there's a clock telling me how long you've been waiting. I know you were not waiting for 15 minutes. And the thing is, it would get really hectic, and I would start to take shit personally. And when, because you're, you're nine hours into your shift, standing on your feet, making minimum wage, everyone's angry at you, it, you know, <laughs> it kind of chisels away at your patience. But so, if it's a Saturday night and it's crazy and I've been there for a long time, if somebody came up to me after waiting 10 minutes and they told me that they'd been waiting for 30, I would be like, <laughs> do you think I'm fucking stupid? Do you think I don't know how long you've been waiting? I mean, obviously I wouldn't put it that way, but um, my internal monologue would get really Joe Pesci about it. And I would, my pride would insist that I tell them they were lying. But what does that gain? I, I, there was no benefit in saying to this hungry stranger, you're a fucking liar. Because, like, I don't know. I just put myself too much in the situation. But more often than not, it was like somebody would come up to me in a huff and they'd be like, I've been waiting a half hour. And I would be like, no, sir, you've been waiting for 10 minutes. But then they would start. This is why it was so fucking pointless, because then they would start taking shit personally. And they'd be like, you think I don't know how to tell time? I've been telling time for years and years as a unit of time. <laughs> and another thing about the ice cream bungalow. Sorry about this digression, by the way. Another thing that I always thought was so interesting is <laughs> and I would get in trouble for this all the time. When you're calling out someone's name to take them to their table. You're also supposed to call out the size of their party. Joe, party of three, or Carol, party of six. But they had <laughs> but they had this rule that I would constantly forget about. And the rule is this. 
if it's just a person sitting by themselves, you're not supposed to call out the number. But here's the thing. You get into this rhythm. You you go on complete autopilot when you're working on a restaurant. And, you know, I would pick up this momentum after walking 200 people to their tables. You know, Ken, party of two. Lily, party of seven. Jake, party of three. That finally, when someone came in and they were by themselves, still, I'd be like, <laughs> I'd read off the hundred names and then I'd go, and Sarah, party of one. And then everybody in the lobby would turn to that person and invariably that person, that Sarah, that party of one would get a bunch of like pitying stares. And it was amazing to see that everyone else would like turn to their friends and families and they'd be like, oh my God, that poor woman, she's eating alone. <laughs> It was, it was, so we, we weren't allowed, to, when it was a person by themselves, you're not supposed to read out the number of the party. It was a rule that I, I didn't understand why it was there until I kept accidentally breaking it. And then I was like, oh, actually, <laughs> this is a really good rule. Instead, I was supposed to just be like, Sarah, <laughs> your table's ready. Anyway, we were talking about how my white guilt compels me to be like above and beyond of like, Accommodating, friendly, gregarious, whatever. I do something similar whenever parents have brought a loud kid into a cafe or a restaurant or, or whatever. I try to act super cool with it, even if it's annoying. Like if I'm at a bar, not a restaurant bar, but a straight up bar, and someone has a fussy baby in that bar, you need to get the fuck out of here with that child. But at a cafe or a restaurant, I try to let compassion prevail, which is not hard to do when I, rem when I remind myself, like, that screaming baby is their life right now. They're trying to get out for a meal. God bless them. Let me not complain or give that parent like a scornful face because all I have to do in order to be away from that noise is step outside. And pretty pretty soon I'm going to do exactly that. Those people at that table, however, they have to take that very noisy thing home and they have to clean it. I remember a video went viral on Twitter a couple years ago and in the video there was a kid on an airplane. He looked to be about seven or eight years old and he was shrieking for like a half hour and he was flailing and he was hitting himself in the head. And I happened to be dating someone at that time who worked with autistic children. And she would come to my apartment with like a couple new bruises at least once a week. And I remember the worst one being like this huge black Rorschach on her forearm from where a kid had slammed her into a doorknob. And so she showed me some videos on YouTube of like severely autistic kids and the flailing, the self-harm, the screaming, sometimes throwing things. That's, I mean, that's like the intense end of the, of the ailment. But yeah, those videos are intense. And I strongly suggest that you take a few formative minutes out of your week to watch one of those videos because it'll stay with you forever. And every time you hear of somebody raising an autistic child, it will trigger your empathy really hard for those parents. But anyway, so this is a while ago. So my girlfriend is telling me these stories. She's showing me this footage. So by the so by the time that video of the seven-year-old on the airplane starts trending on Twitter, at that point, I've got a pretty solid idea of what autism looks like. And when I watched that video, I was like, okay, it's pretty obvious that the kid on this airplane has autism, that he is to be pitied and not scorned. Now, that being said, the natural response when you watch this video of a very loud kid in a sustained half-hour tantrum on an airplane is holy fucking shit. Like, poor kid and God bless his parents, but I pity the passengers too. And I think it's fair I think it's fair to sympathize with everybody in this situation. The kid, his parents, and the people around him. But I was looking at the comments on Twitter and I see that people are overwhelmingly shaming the parents, saying that this kid is some awful, shrill reflection of his own bad parenting, and they should be ashamed of themselves, etc., etc. 
I would say it was no more than one in 50 commenters who would, who was like, guys, this kid clearly has autism. His behavior's got nothing to do with his parents. And I would allow that maybe it's not obvious that he's autistic specifically, but even the most stubborn child cannot sustain a 30-minute screaming, flailing tantrum. This is obviously something neurological. But that being said, I do wonder, even though it's not my place to suggest it, because those parents obviously know their kid better than anyone, but I do, you can't help but wonder, like, could this kid have handled a Benadryl before they got on the plane? I guess, like, that sounds terrible, like, oh, please drug your child for my convenience, but I guess it's, I guess it's natural to kind of just, look at me trying to forgive myself, it sounds, you know, sometimes I say something and I'm like, I'm ashamed of it, and then... I immediately start justifying what I said, and I know it sounds like I'm trying to make an excuse to you, but I'm actually trying to, like, forgive myself. <laughs> I don't know. It's a presumptuous to suggest that his parents were being, like, flippant about the tantrums. I'm sure they are suffering the tantrum worse than anyone else on the plane because they're the ones who are tasked with addressing it and, and, and reducing it, and surely they can feel all the punishing stares. They can probably tell that they're being filmed from a dozen different directions. My great-grandfather, whenever he had to babysit one of his later descendants, and if the descendant was happened to be a toddler or a, just a little kid, and the kid got rambunctious, my great-grandfather would dab a bit of whiskey into a rag, and he would tell the kid to chew on the rag for a while, and eventually the kid would fall asleep. Now, is that good parenting? No, absolutely not. Is that good grandparenting? I think that's a different question. Now, I'm not suggesting that we feed liquor to noisy children, <laughs> although that does sound like a good campaign platform. <laughs> feed liquor to the children. <laughs> Anyways, sorry, I think it snorted into the mic. So yeah, I'm not suggesting that we feed liquor to children. I am just remembering that for me, it's something of a family tradition. But the thing I was getting at when we started is I do a kind of performative patience. Whenever I'm in a public space that happens to have a kid losing his cool. Because I want the parents to feel like they can finish their coffee without being a pariah. Fact of the matter is that we share these public spaces with the public. And the public is comprises a group of people who are all burdened by different things. Which, when they get near us, those burdens might become ours as well. This impulse to blame parents for their noisy children, to make yourself, like, visibly aghast so that they feel terrible, that seems to me like a reflex born of existential terror. Terror at the reality that there are no safe spaces. All spaces can be penetrated by disruption. I had, I had something like this issue earlier in the pandemic. I, I might have mentioned it on the podcast. I got this, I had this weird existential dread when places were all closed and I started to realize there was only one place in this city where I could sit down, and it was the chair at my desk. There was something weirdly, like, punishing about that thought, and I think something similar happens when you maybe fork over some of your hard-earned money so that you can enjoy a nice meal at a restaurant. And then while you're at that restaurant, here comes this baby screaming its little heart out, totally ruining your vibe that you paid for. Because the rules of adulthood dictate that if you work hard, you will get money. And then you can offset the misery of working hard by going out and spending the money. You've deserved it. But then here comes reality and the hell that is other people ruining your pleasant experience that you just paid for. And it makes you wonder, I think, like, maybe I'm doing things wrong. I hate my job and I tell myself that it's a necessary evil because I'll be less miserable when I go out and spend the money that it gives me. And yet the world refuses to acknowledge the fact that I worked very hard and I'm trying to give myself a treat for having worked very hard. Why is the universe not acknowledging this? 
Maybe it's because I'm invisible. <laughs> and this is an argument for mindfulness and meditation, incidentally. Not that I'm trying to be all evangelical about Buddhist shit now, just because I had a life crisis and read three books about it. But consider, we never know when the serenity of a blissful moment is going to be disrupted by a screaming baby, or a hovering helicopter, or one of these petulant, juvenile, stupid fucking Trump trains, where 300 cars drive down a major road, blaring their horns because they they like their candidates so much that they want to make sure that you in your apartment on a Saturday afternoon at the end of an exhausting work week are unable to watch TV or to get work done or to rest or make an important phone call or put your baby to sleep. Those fucking Trump trains are so staggeringly like nationalistic and arrogant and so so patently devoid of the Christian humility that I bet a good portion of those people would claim to possess. Also, it makes me think of drag queens. Like, the loudness of a drag queen's makeup and wardrobe and humor, it's, it's a kind of self-parody that is so layered it ends up being sincere. But anyway, politics. What I was saying about babies that scream in public... <laughs> it sounds like their profession. Um, what I was saying about babies that scream in public is that it's a good incentive to start meditating. Because meditation allows you to, like, appreciate the good tranquil moments of life while they're here like if you sit and meditate and you kind of like clear your head and like you just focus on the sounds and sensations like of that moment if you do that a bunch it starts to strengthen those muscles of perception so that the next time you're having a pleasant afternoon you'll be more appreciative of the moment's textures the curve of your loved one's smile seems a little more distinct or the lilt in their voice and you hear the rustling of leaves and the rain hitting your window, and the spaceships overhead. And then you push all of that peripheral stuff aside from your senses after you've savored it, so that you can focus more closely on the person across from you. Because you've exercised your muscles of perception to the point that when you do really focus on the person in front of you, you can get lost in the fucking orgy of detail that they encompass. And maybe that's a timely message at the end of election season. A note on our ability to appreciate one another. It reminds me, I heard, I, heard a, I heard somebody quote an old French epigrammist recently. I didn't know that was a profession, but it sounds like a hard one. <laughs> when he was asked what, he, someone asked this epigrammist, what's the most important ingredient in a meal? And he said simply, the couple. My one gesture at doing something Halloween-themed for the podcast was this commentary track for Todd Browning's 1931 film adaptation of Dracula, starring Bela Lugosi. The commentary track is about to play out in full. Uh, the movie's only an hour and 15 minutes, and I want you to know, in case commentary tracks aren't really your thing, I was pretty stoned when I recorded it, and I got higher and higher as the show went on. So while the track that you're about to hear is pretty movie-focused in the beginning, and maybe 1930s movie trivia isn't your jam, maybe you're more about like the anecdotal, conversational riffing that sometimes happens on this podcast, if that's the case, then maybe just skip the next 15 or 20 minutes of the podcast, at which point you will find yourself in like the area of the podcast where... <laughs> The commentary just kind of devolves. <laughs> Enjoy.
tonight we are watching Dracula together. This is, right. I am recording this on Halloween night, and I am in my apartment. My roommate's out of town, so I'm in the fucking living room. I got the lights off. I got candles burning. And earlier in the year, possessed by I don't know what kind of impulse, my roommate bought the massive Blu-ray um, Universal Monsters Collectors set. So there's like a disc with six Dracula movies. Excuse me. Six Dracula movies, another with uh, all the Invisible Man movies, another with The Mummy, Wolfman, fucking Creature from the Black Lagoon. And uh, so I've got this beautiful Blu-ray restoration of Dracula, which I think was released just a couple years ago. And the reason I wanted to um, record something about Dracula is because I fucking hate it. And um, I watched the entire movie. It's only an hour and 15 minutes. So all the more incentive, I hope, if you're not really a fan of this kind of shit, go ahead and watch it anyways. Um, but yeah, I fucking hate this movie, and I figure I should contend with it. Now look, right here, okay, so we're about to start. I have it paused on the opening frame where it just says Dracula with big quotation marks. I'm a little bit high, and I'm going to get higher <laughs> as this evening goes on. All right, so I'm going to hit play right now. And all right, is it going? It's going. It says, okay, so y- y- we might be a few seconds off, you and I, but oh, right now it's on the title card. It says Dracula by um, Bram Stoker. But yeah, you know, I'll get I'm going to get back to talking about Dracula. But um as I like I watched the whole movie like immediately prior to this while I was eating dinner. And um after that, I was like setting up my shit out here on the coffee table. I was setting up my laptop and the mic and I was clearing some space to accommodate some candles. It's ambient as fucking here. And um you know what started to happen is like the the music in the background of the DVD menu started looping a bunch because I figure it's only like 45 seconds of music or something like that. And I think this is something maybe unique to my gen- my generation, maybe. Um, but when, I, when that starts to happen, I don't know what it is, man. I think there have been so many times in my life when I was growing up and deep, because, okay, so like the last major Hollywood movie to get a VHS release was A History of Violence in 2005, starring Viggo Mortensen and Ed something. And that that was... So 2005 was the point at which every studio was pretty, pretty certain that the overwhelming majority of American households had DVDs in them. So I was born in 91. So in 2005, I was 14. And yeah, kind of a loner fucking movie nerd. And so there are so many occasions from when I was a teenager where I would fall asleep during a movie that I'd been watching alone and I would wake up two or three hours later to the looping DVD menu, the audio, the looping audio of the DVD menu. And I would kind of leave it, I would just usually lay there for a little bit and listen to it over, you know, six or seven times. And there's so, so when I, when I'm submitted to the sound of, a DVD menu looping and looping and looping to the point where you, you kind of stop hearing the distinctions among sentences or, or, or musical notes, whatever. There's something so distinctly lonesome about that noise to me. It's kind of like the way in old novels you hear people talking about, you know, a bell, a church bell tolling in the distance. That The way that they characterize the lonesomeness of that sound is what I feel 
when I've heard a DVD menu recycle itself for like the seventh time. We are now about five minutes into Dracula, uh, about which I have said not a word, um, but for the fact that, yeah, prior to our having started this recording, you and I, um, I watched this movie again. I fucking hate this movie. I and it was a huge source of insecurity. I've talked about this in a previous podcast, so I'll be brief, but like uh, probably not. But I'll try to anyway. So in uh, two thousand and something, Stephen Sommers, who made the two first two wonderful Mummy movies, uh, starring Brendan Fraser, he made uh, Van Helsing, starring Hugh Jackman and Kate Beckinsale, and. That's about, you know, Dr. Van Helsing, who in this movie kills Dracula. Um, but, you know, they incorporated the Wolfman and Frankenstein, whatever the fuck. So the movie comes out. It's it's a big success, and I think. And to coincide with its release, Universal puts out these, you know, deluxe edition DVD box sets of all the Universal monster movies, or like the big ones. So And I bought that shit. I bought, well, I bought the major three. I bought the Holy Trinity. I bought the Dracula set the Wolfman set, and the Frankenstein set. And I remember Dracula was the only one I could not get through. And I kept falling asleep while I was watching it. And I felt like, you know, I hate to acknowledge it, but I think when I was buying, you know, when I'm 12, 13 years old or whatever, and I'm buying movies that were made in 1930, fuck, obviously I'm doing that with the intention. Uh, there's some hipster shit going on there. And I'm taking a kind of pride in the idea of like, ooh, look at me, super hip. I can watch these old movies. I get it, whatever. And, but I kept falling asleep while I was watching Dracula, and I kept feeling like I was being defeated by it. And so, what's interesting is, like, I remember at that time, I fucking skipped Dracula, because I kept not being able to get through it, and I watched Dracula's Daughter, which I think is from 1936, and I remember... I laughed out loud at some of the intentional comedy. Like, it's a, it's just a fucking good movie. Dracula's Daughter is a better movie than Dracula. But there's a bunch of fucking footnotes to that. Now, like, before we get into the footnotes of why this movie sucks, um, incidentally, okay, so what we just passed was a freeze frame close-up of the crucifix that this woman is draping over Jonathan Harker's neck. Um, or is he... Re- Dude, they do some... St- they do some weird shit, both in this and in Frankenstein. Which I'm going to bring up Frankenstein a lot, because Frankenstein came out in the same year, 1931, and it is so, so concussively a better movie. Like, it, it rattles your brain to watch these two movies made in the same year, see how, how much better one of them is than the other, and it just makes you marvel over the fact that the two of these things are invoked in the same sentence all the time. Anyways, the fuck was I... Oh my god, what was I talking about? Oh my god. So, yeah, all those footnotes about why Dracula sucks. And I was like, oh, before I get into the footnotes of why Dracula sucks, shit, what was I going to talk about? I don't know, man. I guess I'll get into those footnotes, though. So, Dracula sucks, but it was... So, this was filmed in 1930, came out in 1931, and... When they were getting ready to shoot it, I think this is, like, really, really preliminary plans from, like, 1928, before the stock market crash. They were planning to cast Lon Chaney in the title role. Lon Chaney had previously made a splash as a monster in fucking Hunchback of Notre Dame and Phantom of the Opera. So, 
Universal did not want to fucking throw a bunch of money on some chancy shit like Dracula because people tended to go to the movies to have a good time, to watch romances and cowboy shit. And he was like, no, horror doesn't work. We're not going to do horror. But um, they made the he made the commitment. Carl Lemley uh, was the head of the studio, and then Carl Lemley Jr. is his more famous successor. But so Carl Lemley was like, look, we'll greenlight Dracula so long as you can get Lon Chaney in the fucking role. So Lon Chaney's going to play Dracula, and then he fucking dies. And so they get uh, Bela Lugosi, who had played Dracula a whole fucking lot on Broadway already. So he knew the role, and he was like, he was going hard for that fucking role. And, but he, I mean, it's a good thing and a bad thing. The whole thing of his having played Dracula was both good and bad for him, because, like, he could never shake this fucking what do you call it? Typecasting. Um, and so as the, you know, the, the sinister exotic Hungarian dude. Um, but it was good and it was bad that he made his, his desire so clear because then the studio paid him like three grand, I think to be in this movie. I don't know what most people were being paid at the time, but I know that three grand is supposed to is, is considered like they got him for cheap, exploiting the f- fact that they knew he would have done this for nothing. Um, so that was going on, but really the big issue in, you know, the footnote to why this movie sucks is like, oh, this is a beautiful shot, though, of Dracula's castle. Big footnote is that the fucking stock market crashed, and so they had ex- they weren't expecting to do, like, you know, Avatar shit here. It wasn't going to be a crazy special effects extravaganza, but... Everybody, I think, in this production would have readily acknowledged, like, it was supposed to be better than this. And I I haven't done so much research, you know, I was about to say, like, oh, I haven't done so much research into what, into what the cast and crew thought of this movie's success at the time that it came out. But, you know, like, media was so more easily controlled in the 30s, so, like, you get one version of things, and it was the thing that they said through the studio to, you know, the major news outlet of the day. So I was, but my point is like, I think a lot of the people involved in this movie were fucking flabbergasted that it was a big success. And I think if it had, if it had failed a lot and they all learned of it, they would have like nodded somberly and been like, yeah, that Dracula thing we were getting up to, you know, we had planned something better than we could do with our limited means and, you know, it just didn't work out. But I read, you know, with the Thousand Movie Project, it's based on that fuck, oh, this is the famous opening shot in Dracula's Castle, which is a really great shot. And I was just watching some some of their special features about how they restored the documentary. And, you know, I feel like I've seen a lot of supplementary <laughs> fucking DVD material for these Universal Horror movies. Excuse me. And normally, it's a bunch of Film historians, that's usually what the Chiron says, it's, which, usually, which means white men over the age of 60 with interesting hats and facial wear. That's what it means when it says histor- film historian. Anyways, it's a bunch of film historians, you know, stroking their turtleneck and, and speculating about, like, well, not really, spe- just pontificating about why this movie's so profound and whatever the fuck. It's it it's just a bunch of fucking web spinning and it gets really tiresome. But after watching two fucking supplementary material things like that, I watched a very techie. I didn't follow every word of it, but it was a little DVD commentary. Well, you know, a little extra vignette thing of like the process of restoring this, and it was fucking fascinating. Um, 
totally the kind of thing I would never normally watch because I'm intimidated by anything remotely tech. Um, but yeah, you know, I hate this movie. Oh, this is what I was going to talk about earlier. So I don't like this movie, but I think it's constructive to engage with the media that actively repels you. Because, like, in the same way that sometimes you watch a movie and you're like, this isn't very good. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not even going to try to get my friends to watch this because they're not going to get it. And it's not that you have some profound, deep intellectual understanding of the material. It's that it just rings your bell, your private, spiritual, emotional, intellectual, whatever. It's just for you. It fits you. Every now and then you find a shitty movie that does that for you. And I think in the same you know, the other end of that spectrum is, like, sometimes you find an empirically solid, good, famous, beloved movie, and you hate it. And I think if you, if, I think it's equally beneficial and yields equal insight if you pay special attention to both of those movies, the mediocre one that enchants you and the spectacular one that enrages you. Um, so I like to engage with Dracula. I have seen Dracula in its entirety, also, you know, including the viewing that I had earlier today, um, earlier this evening, I've seen it three times in its entirety. But I shit you not, I have, I have, I have attempted it. I've sat down with it at least a dozen times. Um, so I know the first half of this movie very well. Second half, not so much. But you know, um, that doesn't really pose much of an issue because the whole thing is really fucking boring and nobody says anything. So it's not, it's, this is not like, I'm trying to think of a, a, a complicated example of a movie. This is not Lawrence of Arabia. This is not where, oh, I, I, didn't, I didn't watch the second half so I can't opine. No, you can opine about Dracula if you haven't seen the second half. It's also fucking boring. And like the thing is, I sometimes am, am prompted to question whether you can tr whether I can trust my own impression of something's excitement factor, especially when it's 90 years old. Because, so this movie's 90 years old. And if I find it really fucking boring, there's a part of me that's like, well, this was made for a generation of people who were not, you know, relentlessly mediated. People who did not have the instant gratification of the fucking entire internet in their pocket. And so I, so I say to myself, like, oh, I'm wrong-headed in thinking that this is tedious. It's just that I am some fucking intellectually desiccated member of my bullshit generation. But that's not the case, because with Thousand Movie Project, I've had to watch Todd Browning's other movies. He's the director. His other movies from this era. And not only... Okay, so this is 1931. Not only did he go on to make Freaks in 1932, which is twice as funny, twice as scary, twice as exciting, and... I don't think it's much longer in terms of runtime. Um, like, three or four years prior to this, he made a fucking movie with Lon Chaney called The Unknown. And I think it's it's one of Joan... Well, like, one of Joan Crawford's, like, first five movie credits. And that movie is fucking fantastic. And I think that one is actually just, like, 45 minutes. Um, it's propulsive. It's sinister. It's got more inventive imagery. And... So, like, he was making more interesting movies prior to this. He was making more interesting movies at pretty much the same time. I think it's fine for me to be like, yo, this movie's really fucking boring. And also, when you look at the, like the, the, the howling reality that, like, they intended to do something bigger. 
And this is this entire movie is almost like a concession to that initial plan. You know, it doesn't have the the star that they intended. They don't have the money they intend. But you know, happy accidents, right? Because I'm sure Lon Chaney would have blown it out of the fucking park. He would have done something iconic and and amazing. But he would not have been Bela Lugosi here. And uh, yeah, I guess that's yeah. This is without a, a doubt like one of the most dude. Is his... Bro, is his pendant a Jewish star? Is Dracula Jewish? No. Dude, that's a Jewish star. Oh my god. And then the crucifix drop, drops and he recoils. <laughs> oh my god. I'm sure that's it's not supposed to be... I feel like in all the shit that I've heard and read about Dracula, I would remember if someone was like, Oh yeah... He's circumcised. Um. Oh shit, I was supposed to put on subtitles. Um. Very old wine. I know that's what he says. I can't hear it though. I mean, I don't have the. Where? How do I set up? Okay. Set up. And. Spoken language. English. My voice cracked. Um. Feature commentary. No. Subtitles. English SDH. I don't know what SDH means. But fuck yeah. SDH. It's delicious, he says. Oh, yeah. This is the thing where Dracula pours him what he refers to as very old wine. And I hope you enjoy it. Oh, that was another thing. Dude, I intended to do so much Halloween shit for this podcast because I love me some fucking spooky shit. Spooky shit is great. It was like, oh man, the most formative shit to ever work its way into my psyche when I was young was horror movie shit, spooky shit. And um, so my plan was to do a fucking podcast every week of October with some spooky shit in it, but then I was working on the ebook, I got caught up in it, and then when I finished the ebook, I was so fucking burned out that I was like, you know what, I'm taking a week off. And that week happened to be the last week of October. So yeah, anyways, point is, I wanted this to be a thing for the podcast that I record a commentary track for Dracula, and so I read the book again, which I haven't read since middle school, Bram Stoker's novel, and Dracula is, like, way more fucking gross and repugnant and just smarmy and old in the book. Like, there's, there isn't an ounce of, of sexuality about the shit that he does, although, actually... He might be gay. Dracula might be gay. He's got three wives, but I think there have been more elaborate beard acts in history. Uh, hold on. So, I don't... A book came out a few years ago. It was a... I think it's called Something in the Blood. And it is a biography of Bram Stoker, the novelist who wrote Dracula. And I got a friend... With Steve Donahue, who really he's been on the podcast a few times. He loves Dracula. It's one of his favorite novels, I think. And he was singing the praises real hard for that book, that biography of Bram Stoker. And I remember asking him in passing, like, what did you like so much about that biography? And he goes, you know, I've been reading Dracula so much over the years, it confirmed for me some suspicions I had about Browning's, uh, not Browning, what's it called? Uh, Stoker's... Um, orientation, sexuality. So I'm guessing what Steve meant by that is that 
there's something gay here. And it's so the, the hesitation there is because I'm, I'm running through all of the sexual associations that we've had that we have with Dracula and pop culture. And it's like the penetration of the teeth sucking on someone's neck. But in the book, it's different because like the book is what is called an epistolary novel where it's comprised it com- it's composed of fucking like diary entries and letters um, and recordings. It's not like just a straight prose recounting of the story. So, in it's mostly made up of diary entries. And when you consider like, oh, what's a diary? What's a fuck? Uh, a diary is like a friend, I guess. But um, if you are writing shit in a diary, you're confiding it to that diary. It's a secret, man. You don't go around broadcasting that shit that you tell your diary. So your diary is a confidant. And then when it's when the book is not making, you know, is not showing a diary passage. It's showing a letter. And in the letter, it's always someone confiding something very intimate and deep and secret to a friend. And then sometimes in their letters, they're like, hey, I'm confiding this to you and don't tell Lucy's mom because she, you know, she's got a delicate heart right now and you know, you don't want to shock her. Um, so it, there's this motif in the novel, I don't know if it's really intentional, but of secrets, of people confiding things to each other. Okay, the thing on screen right now is um, a silhouette. Okay, so there's that ship that turns up and like... I guess, the, I guess what you call a ghost ship. Um, everybody who was on board the ship is dead. And they, the, the last person who was alive was the captain. And the captain is like his wrists are bound to the steering wheel. And we see, you see a silhouette of it in the movie. And um, in the book, it's pretty graphic. Like the all the people on the ship are disappearing one by one. And then the captain gets... He is the last guy on the ship, and he's he's like, oh man, there's something spooky. There's spooky shit <laughs> on my boat, and he um, so he wraps a crucifix around himself, and he ties his hands to the uh, steering wheel of the ship. And in the book, it talks about how like, by the time they find him, he's been dead on the boat for about two days, and the ropes have cut through his wrists into the bone, and um, there's a lot of shit like that, actually, in the book. I almost, dude, I was reading the book at Pasión del Cielo, and I, I'm super squeamish. I've talked about this in the past, and I got dizzy. Okay, so COVID shit is still going on. So all the tables and chairs are like six feet apart, and they have they have a love seat, and they have two armchairs. And those three big, chunky pieces of furniture, they've got signs on them. They're like, don't, don't, fo- don't sit here. And I had to go and throw myself over the couch and lay down because I was reading a passage in Dracula that's describing sort of their archaic blood transfusion method. And I started getting nauseous. And then it wasn't just that. It's like I talked to my mom after reading that passage and she was um, recounting to me the details of a procedure she just had. And I was like... I'll, I'll call you back. <laughs> and I had to throw myself over the couch. And um, I was white as fuck. And like I could feel my face getting cold and my hands too. And they started shaking. And then a barista came up and she was going to be like, 
oh, you can't lay down here. But I'm there every day. So she knows that I know I can't lay down there. And so I just gave her a look, and I was like, hey, sorry, I got really dizzy. I got to lay down for a minute. And she was like, oh, do you – it was. It turned into kind of a thing. But this happened about a year ago when I was at American Social. Dude, I don't even want to fucking remember this, but I'll go ahead and tell you. I was at American Social, and – I fucking, I look up from my beer, and they're playing ESPN shit. And of course, like, ESPN, it seems like the kind of channel where, you know, people can watch it and not worry that they're going to faint. But they fucking were showing something from baseball of yore, and fucking, dude, I'm remembering it too vividly, and I blame the weed. So there's a guy, and like, someone, th- like, someone hits a ball way into outfield, and there's a fucking outfielder chasing it, and he runs into the wall, <laughs> he catches the ball, but he holds up, like he's puzzled by it, he holds up his right hand, and it's so fucking broken, dude, oh my god, his form is so fucking broken, and I saw that at the bar, and I like staggered off my stool, and the stool fell over, and then I had to go and run and lay down on these couches that they've got, I guess it's not even really tight, it's just that they have very big booths that have like sofa cushions, like sofa pillows on it and like i had to dive into one of those things because i was about to knock the fuck out um so here's dracula he's at the opera and he's hypnotizing this lady we never see anything like that in the novel really um anyways that's what i'm so he and then he just concludes by uh, telling her to obey Oh, another thing that was in like one of the, in the, in there among the supplementary material on this disc was an interview with Bella Lugosi's son, who appears to be quite old, and he says that like one of his most prized possessions is that he still has um, one of Bela's capes from this movie, um, which I guess is cool. Um, oh man, you know, but he was talking about how like Dracula's cape is one of the most prized sort of cinematic bits of (laughs) memorabilia. I don't know. Yeah, memorabilia. And um, that reminds me, dude, I feel kind of fucking weird about this, but I have been reading Buddhist shit and meditating, and I don't want to go around broadcasting this to people because I feel like they think I'm, you know, it gives the impression that I'm going to grow my hair out and start wearing gowns and, and wooden jewelry. But it's nothing like that, but it's helping me clear my head and, and, and sort of focus on things. But anyways, I fucking read Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance, which came out in 1974. And I think it sold like 5 million copies. It sold a million the, the year it came out. And I was, I was doing some research about the book, like the background of the book, and it kind of did my tummy some good vibes to see that... Um, it got rejected by 128 publishers, which in the 1970s, without like pre-email, I can't even fathom the frustration and 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 the tenacity involved in fucking sending out your manuscript to a hundred to over 120 fucking. Well, back then I don't think they did the agent thing. I think you just sent it directly to the publisher. Um. God, fucking different world, man. What was I talking about? Oh, Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance. There's some heavy shit in that book. You know, but it's another... It's weird because, like... As it is, I confess, I I, I liked... I like to... 
dig on lowbrow cult, you know, pop culture, campy shit, and highbrow, if I can understand it. Um, I have no issue with enjoying popular entertainment. But when I get, like, really enchanted by pop philosophy or pop psychology, um, I feel like... I feel like a chump. And so there are passages in Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance where it like blows my mind and I have to put the book down and I have to like stare at the wall and sip my coffee for a bit and just process what I read. And I'm like, am I being, am I drinking the Kool-Aid? I think, I I don't know. Sometimes I think I'm drinking the Kool-Aid. Um, I don't know, man. I have had two people give me copies of Malcolm Gladwell's Outliers. And I really hate that book. I think Malcolm Gladwell is interesting. I think he's like... What I would say about him is that he is a great professional conversationalist, if that's the word, or conversationist. And I kind of feel that way about Orson Welles, too. Like, I don't know. I feel like it's a certain kind of dick, dick move to say of Orson Welles, the guy who made Citizen Kane, that really, you know, the greatest on-screen appearances of his career are as a guest on Johnny Carson, um, shit like that. But I think with Welles, it's kind of true. Uh, it's just how I feel, I guess. I don't... I, don't I, I like Citizen Kane a lot, and I totally understand why people are like, yeah, it's the best movie ever. But, um, I don't know, man. I don't think it's like the shit and a half. I certainly didn't feel that way about Magnificent Ambersons, which is the movie he made right after that. Dude, did I ever tell you about when I fucking enraged the cult of Orson Welles enthusiasts? Uh, you can go, you can still go and watch the video that I made. I posted some video about, like, the fact that after Orson Welles finished making The Magnificent Ambersons, his second movie, he got sent to Brazil to make a documentary during World War II that you know, America would sort of disseminate. And if I remember correctly, the idea is like, you know, South America was remaining neutral during World War II. And Hitler was trying to turn them toward his side, and then the U.S. was trying to turn South America towards our side. And so this was part of that project to, to sort of get in bed with... Anyways... They sent Orson Welles to make a documentary about um, <clears throat> Rio. And he never finishes the movie because he's like 27 and priapic and he just keeps having sex with people and getting drunk and showing up to the set drunk. And I thought it was really funny that he, like, the government is like, hey, you know, the fate of the world hangs in the balance. We need someone to fucking help us make a documentary to secure some allies. And so they send Orson Welles to Rio. <laughs> oh my god. Anyways, he fucks up the project. And I'm telling you this version of what Orson Welles did because it is the version that I read of in the second volume of Simon Callow's very thorough four-volume biography of Orson Welles. This is how he tells that story, which is that fucking well how you know wells fucked everything up whatever so i made a video about it kind of slideshow you thing and i'm narrating it about it's like a slideshow thing i'm narrating it about how orson wells fucked this up 
and um, I posted it on YouTube, and I was like, oh, you know, some people who like my other juvenile shit will watch this and think it's amusing and probably won't finish it, because it's like a three-minute video. Dude, it was not my audience that watched that video. It was Wells enthusiasts, and... If you go on that video and you look in the comments section, it's just a bunch of people being like, you don't know what the fuck you're talking about. <laughs> they get so bent out of shape. And uh, they're like, I don't know where you're getting your information, but you're full of shit. And then they tell the story as they understand it, which is that, you know, I'm not to sort of throw gas on a fire here, but the way that the Wellsians talk about Wells is not unlike the way that Trumpists talk about Trump. Um... Just any anecdote, it's like any story you tell about Wells in which he does not prevail as the hero of that story, the clever whatever, the clever Lothario, they deny it. It's just fake news. Fake, I don't know, man. And what? I, but you know what? I felt, well, here we see Dr. Van Helsing. I felt like kind of like Dr. Van Helsing because everyone in the comments was like, where the fuck did you get this information? This is all bullshit. And I was like, yo, the second volume of Simon Callow's official biography of Orson Welles. Where do you want me to get my information? Because um, that's their, re I don't know why I'm going on this fucking wormhole. You know what? I think whenever I just can see very clearly that someone doesn't like me, I just stew in it. And I'm like, I just dwell too much. And I think, I think those Wellsians don't like me. I was gonna say I think those men don't like me, and I was like, let me say Wellsians, but no. I think I'm I feel pretty confident in saying that the people calling me a motherfucker on YouTube because I uh, maybe got something wrong about Orson Welles' life, I'm pretty, I'm gonna guess with confidence that those are all men. I don't think women do that. Okay, so Dr. Van Helsing here is talking about about Renfield. Renfield is the one who's eating insects, but like, there's some conf they they're conf they conflate characters here. Anyways, in the book, Renfield has an interesting idea, and I'm pretty sure it it comes from some old religious idea, um, some kind of theist idea that like, the more souls he consumes, the larger his soul becomes and so in, in the book he's he's in this um cell in an insane asylum and he uses he makes he creates lines of sugar on his window ledge to attract flies and then he captures those flies and he feeds them to several spiders and then he feeds the spiders to pigeons and his and then finally he eats the pigeons although his plan originally is like feed all the birds to a cat and then eat the cat and the thing is like yeah, he just he wants to expand his soul by consuming souls. And, um, I don't know, that seems to fit into fucking where my head is with uh, Zen and the Art of Motor... Uh, just Buddhist shit about, like, trying to broaden your... Well, he's trying to broaden his soul or whatever. I guess meditation is all about, like, broadening your consciousness. And, man, trying to wrap my head around some of that shit is real difficult. Um... Yeah, it's just not, it's not at all, <laughs> like, the way I do things. <laughs> There's nothing about meditation where I look at the process and I'm like, oh, yes, <laughs> just like I usually do. <laughs> 
because it's always like really tranquil people in comfortable clothing and I don't know what it is it's not some kind of obstinacy about fashion or whatever but my entire wardrobe is is made up of fucking denim and flannel and I don't it's not comfortable I like the look but it's not because sometimes I'm walking a mile towards Brickle wearing flannel and denim and it's 92 degrees and there's not a cloud in the sky and I'm thinking to myself let me let me stop here on the sidewalk and lay down in traffic because I can't walk another fucking block with the, it feels it feel you know what it feels like the heat loosened my scrotum someone grabbed it and wrapped it around my entire body like fucking saran wrap I feel encased in my own scrotum <laughs> on those hot sweaty fucking disgusting days and in those moments I say to myself I'm never buying another piece of denim or flannel again. And then I do it. And it's not because I am in Macy's and I'm thinking like, oh, yes, fashion requires pain. It's not that. It's that I just, I think I keep, when I'm drenched in sweat, I forget how much I like the look of denim and flannel. And then when I'm buying denim and flannel, I forget how painful it is to be dressed that way. (laughs) Um, anyways, so here's Van Helsing holding up what looks like an innocuous flower to Renfield, and and Renfield recoils, and I think, I'm not paying attention to the subtitles, but I think what he's holding up is garlic, right? Because in the book, that's a thing where he presents Lucy with what, she's like, oh, these white flowers, how lovely, and then it turns out it's like ropes of garlic, and she's got to like hang them around her room. Um... You know, uh, something that you notice in, like, 1950s movies is, like, everyone wants to talk about science and, like, oh, the, we gotta create this vaccine or this we're building a bomb, a weapon of war. Or maybe it's, like, Gort, um, Klaatu Barata Niktu from fucking Forbidden Planet, whatever the fuck. Anyways, no, that's, no, it's not Forbidden Planet, it's the day the Earth stood still. The fuck, why is it, the digression, Why? What, I'm, what I was trying to say is, when you look at this, and you look at Frankenstein, you see, like, science is a huge factor in both of these movies. We get, you know, it's Dr. Abraham Van Helsing who defeats Dracula. It's Dr. Frankenstein who both creates the Frankenstein monster and destroys it. No, I guess he wouldn't. No, he doesn't destroy the monster. Anyways, you know what I'm talking, you see where I'm getting at is that, in the same way that we look at sometimes at, like, 1950s science fiction and we say oh it's a manifestation of the cultural mindfulness of the bomb and we were in the suburbs and everyone had appliances the fetishism of you know a household with appliances i wonder what was going on in the early 1930s where maybe there was a subconscious thing going on in american filmmakers about science the significance of it was there a conversation about an h-bomb in like before long like a decade before it was dropped i don't think so i don't know i'm looking into that i was noticing uh a bella lugosi's hairline and it reminded me of something i was watching recently about like the (laughs) the evolution of steven seagal's hairline (laughs) since the 80s and um Steven, I've heard accounts from 
SNL cast, Saturday Night Live cast members, you know, one of the most common questions they get asked is, um, who was the worst guest host? And of performers, cast members from the 90s and maybe the late 80s, I've seen a few of them say it was Steven Seagal, that he didn't have a, he didn't have a comedic bone in his body and um, took everything personally, ill-tempered, uncooperative, and um, that basically is Steven Seagal's reputation, along with the fact that he's talentless, you know, as an actor. Um, they had all these other grievances, and there's an anecdote, I don't know if it's true, but that Steven Seagal was working on some movie where they had hired some kind of karate master to be sort of a, I don't know, fight coordinator or something. Hold on. And Steven Seagal starts boasting of the fact that, like, nobody can knock him out. Or more specifically, the fact that nobody can choke him out. And so he's boasting about this, and this karate master who's there to choreograph fights, he's, he's hearing this shit, and um, <clears throat> he... Whatever. He challenges Seagal, or Seagal challenges him. They end up in a tete-a-tete, and the karate dude chokes out Steven Seagal so effectively that Steven Seagal shits his pants. And it was like a big fiasco on set that Steven Seagal had shit himself, (laughs) and he was unconscious. Um, I probably made that story sound so much more like Regal than it is. So here we have this scene of Dr. Van Helsing. He's talking to Lucy, and he's like, Hey, I noticed something on your neck. May I open that scarf and get a look at that? Um, And then he starts uh, inspecting. and I guess this is kind of where he comes to the conclusion that, like, okay, we're talking about a vampire. Count Dracula. I think some of these scenes work pretty well. Um, and you know, here when I go to bed, I talk to my, um, I gotta whisper her name, my, uh, at my Amazon Alexa. And I'll be like, hey, Alexa, play fucking rain sounds or thunderstorm sounds so I can go to sleep. And um, she'll play those sounds. I don't know why I use a feminine pronoun when talking about this fucking device. But she'll play those sounds and I go to sleep. But something that's more effective than that, and I may have mentioned this on the show already, if you have that device, try this. When you're getting into bed, tell her to set the volume to level 2. And then say, Alexa, play Noam Chomsky music. And she will play... Like, I collected 40 years of recordings of the um, MIT (laughs) professor of linguistics, Noam Chomsky, talking about foreign affairs issues starting in, like, the 70s to today. And today is fucking... Dude, that audio is my fucking favorite thing on Earth because he's 92 years old. And he's increasingly hopeless. Like, I mean, nihilistic. And... But he still does these Zoom interviews um, every week. There's two or three new Noam Chomsky interviews, and he gets it over his laptop, and he's like, 
<laughs> he's gazing into the uh, into the webcam like Ace Ventura when he f- jumps into that empty pool and he's looking for Snowflake. Um, and he's talking like this. He's mouth right up to the microphone and he's kind of just growling out his answers. And everything is so defeatist. Everything is so a man at the end of his life. Um, but the reason I brought that up is because this movie is so goddamn old that it features all throughout what you would call a hiss. Like, it's it's cracklesome, like an old record, and I think someone has told me, like, it's sometimes the sound of, like, the film running through the camera. But um, there's a hiss in this movie, and also so little... It's a technological issue, and also so little dialogue to interrupt the hiss. It is... It's mostly hiss, this movie. And I would like... I There is something so... I think, like, amniotic about that sound. And I think that's why it kind of lulls me to sleep almost every time I try to watch it. But I was... I mean, I was also going to, like, concede that, you know... I think some of these scenes here, these confrontation scenes with Van Helsing and, and Dracula, I think they're pretty well done. Um... But they're not, like, riveting. They're just well done. Um, oh, yeah. So we just watched uh, Bela Lugosi smash the mirror that Van Helsing presented him with. And it seemed like he was about to lose his cool. He's snarling and shit. But then he composes himself. And then we cut to Van Helsing. And Van Helsing is rubbing his chin like, oh, yeah, boy, I got you. It was, it's funny. It's funny. Eh, probably not. Oh my god! I love Van Helsing's face! See, but see, the fact that this scene is still going on. For one who has not lived even a single lifetime, you are a wise man, Van Helsing. Oh, you know what I really like, what I consider a big compliment, is when people who are mentally unsound tell me that I put off good energy. And it it has happened... With what I, I don't consider it an alarming frequency. It's a good thing. But I feel like I have a lot of instances in my life. Oh my god, look at his fucking pants. They're tucked into his tube socks. Whoa, that was, what a fucking stupid outfit. Man, I wish I could go back in time and just tease him. <laughs> Bro, your fucking pants are stupid. What was I talking about? Oh no. Oh no, did I lose it? What was I talking about? Ah, <laughs> I guess we'll never know. <laughs> nah, man, I'll I'll listen to this recording and maybe I'll put it in the uh, <laughs> put it in the envelope. The envelope? What? The uh, fucking epilogue? Um, I'll put it in the envelope. Fuck, dude. This makes me feel like my professional future is so goddamn hopeless that, like, I'm I'm running some deep philosophical train of thought, and then I see a man in funny pants, and I lose my place! <laughs> oh, man. Like, that's gonna make my life very difficult if I can't do my job just because, like... Because I can so clearly see myself getting sat down in my boss's office. He's like, yo, Alex, why didn't you finish this, these reports? And I'm like... There was a man in funny pants. <laughs> oh man, Ch- marijuana. I'll tell you. Oh, so here's 
oh, Bella Lugosi just kind of like stretching his arms out in traffic, and here comes Lucy. That's kind of hot. <laughs> why did I word it that? Why did I put it that way? My point is that there's something seductive there, and um, I don't, I don't think when they were making this, they had the Dracula sex appeal thing in mind. I think they knew Bor- Bella. I was gonna say Boris Lugosi. Bella Lugosi is like a handsome dude. And he's eloquent, he's got charm and charisma, and there's something, you know, kind of handsome, enticing about that. But I don't think anyone... I think that was a total accident, the fact that Bela Lugosi became, like, a sex icon after this movie. Um, Karina Longworth, I don't know if you're familiar with her name, she does a, she hosts a podcast called um, You Must Remember This. It's one of the... She's just one of these... People who who are so naturally born for that kind of thing that I think her show, which she was recording at her apartment, was like a top ten podcast after two episodes or something like that. And it's just it's like film history. And she did a series about the relationship between Boris Karloff, who played Frankenstein, and Bella Lugosi, who plays Dracula. And Karloff went on to have not a not a wildly successful career, but he you know he worked until the end, and he wanted to be working. He was very serious, and then Bela Lugosi, you know, had drug addictions, and he was so conflicted about the fact that he was always um, you know typecast. But Karina Longworth, in her episode about this uh, this particular period in Lugosi's life, post Dracula, she reads some of the press releases that Universal put out where, like, it'd be like, you know, Bela Lugosi is being interviewed by someone, and um, they ask him a question, and he gives, you know, a loquacious 30-line, you know, grammatically pristine response, and obviously it was all from their publicity team. Like, Bela Lugosi didn't see that shit in that interview. But, um... In those PR quotes... They were definitely playing up his sexuality and the inherent sexuality of the Dracula story. But I th- I wonder if that was just a realization from after the fact. Where at first they, were, they just thought they'd made a, a spooky movie, spooky shit, and that they got away with it because, you know, the depression happened and, you know, they, their budget was... I think they didn't really give much of a fuck about this movie or think highly of it. And then it started getting popular, and people started talking about the sexuality, so they sort of retconned their marketing strategy. That's my impression. Which is informed by nothing. This is just my stoned conjecture. One of the challenges of recording a a movie commentary track is you have to talk for an hour or more. And um, I don't know if I have that much to say. Well, on certain topics, no, you know what? Probably, fuck, I never stay on topic is the thing. So I think there's maybe like 30 topics on which I could talk for 10 minutes. And since I'm so scatter-shot-brained, I maybe end up talking about all those things in succession, and you get your hour. No kidding. I was dating... I went on a couple dates with this woman named Sarah a few years ago, and we had met on Tinder, and... When we met up, we met at a coffee shop in South Miami called uh, Dr. Smood, and we were drinking tea, 
and she was just not really talking. Like she seemed tense and just not talking. And so when I turned to que- when I asked her a question, she would kind of steer it back towards me. And then after a while, I was like, I think I just need to talk because she was comfortable when I was talking. She just didn't like silences. She didn't want to talk clearly. So I talked, and we were hanging out, and I was talking the whole time, asking her questions. She would give monosyllabic answers and then turn it around. And I'm just talking and talking just because I'm like, I'm nervous about... I'm nervous about... I don't know. Just, I don't know, fucking up the date. Anyways, we were out together for seven hours, and I talked the whole time. (laughs) Pretty much without stopping. And then we went on a second date, and she does. She's in that same headspace where I, you know, she's clearly loosening up and um, just not that comfortable talking. And I had nothing to say, like I couldn't talk. I I realized everything that was on the tip of my tongue to mention about anything was an opinion or a story that I had recounted with the first date, the seven-hour date, where I talked nonstop. And I always think back to that because I thought it was interesting. I had that moment where I was like. Okay, now I know. I have exactly seven hours worth of material. If you were to put me in a room and 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 I had to... Like, if I didn't stop... Like, the moment I stopped, I don't know, giving my shtick to somebody, they were going to shoot me. I would live for seven hours. Because that's all I got. Um, so, so I'm going to do seven DVD commentaries. Well, no, because the movies are two hours. I'll do three. <laughs> Ish. Um, and you mustn't... Ki- I mustn't kiss you ever again. What are you trying to say? You tell him. You make him understand. I don't like dialogue like this. Um, I don't know, man. I guess in all the... And all of the 1930s movies that I watched, where I was struck by the dialogue, it was never like, oh, that sounds so authentic. Because obviously people in 1930s, in the 1930s don't talk like people in the 2020s. Um, yeah, so it's never relatability that compels me toward the dialogue in a movie from the 30s. It's the cleverness, or the poetry of it, um, or the delivery, like when you watch those Howard Hawks screwball comedies, and it's Cary Grant and um, Catherine Hepburn talking a mile a minute with joke after joke after joke. Um, That kind of... Yeah, but I'm never, you know... Often when I'm, you know, reading Bretty Snell, I don't know, there are some writers where I'm like, oh, this sounds like such real dialogue, I love it. Never feel that with the 30s. I don't feel that with the 40s or the 50s either. Um... Oh, that'll be interesting. Like, once I catch up... Once I'm... In the 2000s with Thousand Movie Project... To, to... To... To try to notice, like... In what decade does the dialogue start sounding... Relatable. Like, it's a conversation you yourself have overheard. Um... I'm sure it's not... I'm sure it's not... Them trying to caricaturize it... I think it's just the way people talked back then, but I've noticed in movies from like the late 60s, early 70s, they are so heavy with the hippie speak, like, dude, brother, sister, peace on earth, you know, they say such hippie-ish things, it seems like a caricature, 
but man, I guess maybe that's just... I don't know. I wonder, was this studio kind of going up over the top, trying to capture the attention of the Utes? Or is that how people talked? Spoke. Recollect that Dracula cast no reflection in the mirror. Wow, my, psh, my little Hungarian voice there sounded like Borat. I saw Borat too, by the way, and I was really psyched for it. Um, I think... I don't know what comes across when I talk about this subculture, but like comedy geeks, um, it's a certain kind of group. I'm kind of a comedy geek, but I don't know. Anyways, I think Sasha Baron Cohen is a fucking genius. And I watched uh, Borat 2, and I thought it was pretty funny. I laughed out loud a few times, but overall I was kind of disappointed. I think I knew there was no way that you could recapture what had been done in 2006, but, um... I don't know. I was a little bit disappointed. Um, but probably just because I'm looking at it, like, entirely within the context of its predecessor and giving it an, holding it to an unfair metric for judgment but professor all I want is to get Mina away that will do no good our only chance of saving Miss Mina's life and you know another thing that's interesting about this and I guess it was kind of a thing in movies in general is that like the hero here is basically Van Helsing and he's like old as fuck he's boring he's slow but he's like the hero Kind of. Like, he's not the romantic lead. And apparently this movie was originally billed <laughs> as a romance. And there is a love story, but, like, this movie was pitched to general audiences as a romance? Can you imagine? <laughs> like, you go there on a first date, and they're like, Oh, it's Nanting Fay. We're gonna get a lovely story. And then they walk out of that theater, and they're like, oh, What the fuck? <laughs> what the fuck did I just watch? Um... You know, I hear all these stories about, like, it always makes the news when it happens <laughs> that there will be, like, a like a 2 p.m. screening of, you know, uh, Pixar's Up somewhere in America, and the projectionist is stoned, and he puts on, you know, <laughs> Saw 3 or something like that. Um, but there was a time, I forget what movie I was, I was seeing. I think it was an M. Night Shyamalan movie, but The Ring 2 was about to come out. And I'm in a movie theater, and they start the trailers, and the first trailer they show was for The Ring Part 2. But the projectionist, again, I guess he was... I don't know what the fuck was going on up there, but it played upside down and backwards. And, dude, I'm sure you could fucking make a rendering of that trailer off of YouTube, upside down and backwards, but let me tell you, that was the scariest fucking thing I had ever seen. <laughs> because it was so... Like, it was... It felt like a fucking transmission from an extraterrestrial. It was, I mean, to call, <laughs> to, to say that watching that trailer upside down and backwards was, <laughs> I just can't, dude, I remember how fucking horrified I was by that footage. I should recreate it and put it on, and put it on Instagram. I think I can figure out how to do that. Um, why are we talking about trailers? Huh. Laughs maniacally, <laughs> say the captions. Uh, 
Now he's twisted and broken in the mind bars as if they were cheese. Dracula's in the house. Both in the house? In the house. I'll show you where we can put Mr. Renfield where he won't escape. Um, yeah, man. Like, if you watch this next to Frankenstein, like, the climax... There's no comparing the climaxes. Like... And one of the major th distinguishing elements of the, you know, like, the climax between Dracula and Frankenstein is, like, something actually happens in the Frankenstein one. Like, we don't see Dracula get spiked in this. Okay, what we're looking at right now is Van Helsing and Dracula in the same room confronting each other and they're alone. Um... And they both, each of them knows where the other one stands. And I've always liked this shit in fiction. Uh oh. Uh oh. Um. <laughs> the, the mic, like the TV's recording me. I don't know what, what to do with that. Oh, it's gone. Fucking. Oh, yeah. What I've always liked in movies and books is the worthy adversary thing. Where. Two antagonists, like, you know, they've got warring interests all through a movie, and then they sit down in a room together to discuss things. And it's the idea of, like, I don't know, I just like that idea of the worthy opponent. And that's a vibe that I get from this scene when they're confronting each other, like, in a, a modern adaptation, I think in this scene, they would be throwing tables at each other. They'd be... Pulsing with mus muscles, and they would be just hurling furniture. But here it's just... It's two very old men. And it's like a tense standoff. I can't, I can't figure how someone would, would pull this kind of thing off today. To have two elderly fucking lead characters just standing across from each other in a scene and talking in a way that suggests impending violence and it's believable. I don't know. More Wolfsbane. Oh, see here. He, yeah, no, he's not given... He's not handing women garlic like he was in the book. He's handing them Wolfsbane. A more, I guess, admittedly more cinematic treatment. I'm hearing people outside. Like, I thought Halloween was cancelled, man. Um, oh, but you know, I was at the fucking mall today, and like, all these families were walking around holding hands, and I was seeing little kids in their costumes, so that's cool that, like, they were able to do something. But everyone's costume has to be able to accommodate a face mask. Um, the times, the times. So, there's a, an Instagram account. I don't know how we got linked up. Turns out it's a relative of mine. And um, I mean, this relative of mine has a lot of, like, edgy political shit. Just memes about edgy political shit. Hundreds of them. Peppered with photos of <laughs> our family and um 
Instagram was like, oh, do you want to follow this person? Maybe they'll follow you back. And I was like, you know what? <laughs> I think I'm good. I don't. Not only do I not want that shit in my feed, but like, they're going to look at my feed and deduce that my politics are very different. And then that's just going to fucking create tension. I don't know. I'm still not... I don't know, man. There's a lot of tension in my family about politics. Um, he's got we got people on either side, and dude, it's so weird to have that be an issue. <laughs> like when I'm hanging out with family, I guess just because I'm well, you know among the youngest generation of of the family, so I've, I'm accustomed to like, oh, you hang out with them and you tell them all the private, embarrassing things that are happening to you. But now it's like, nope, there are conversational landmines. That must be avoided. Um, just dude, these memes were just fucking batshit, man. About like COVID was cultivated and deployed as like something by the Democrats to sabotage the election, dude. I got th these people in my family, man. <laughs> Anyways. There's a bat on screen. You know, I wonder about... Because remember, I told, before I watched this, I was watching one of those special features about how they restored the footage, and so they showed a lot of how the original film looks today. And, like, obviously the film is real... Like, the film itself is super fucked up and scratched and damaged. And, um... So, but anyways, because this is so refined... And restored now, we look at the bat on screen and we're like, oh, look at those strings, that's so conspicuous, whatever. But I wonder if, given just the quality of the film, were the strings virtually invisible for an audience of 1931 when they went to see it at their local movie house? Like it was so cracklesome and flickery that, uh, you know, the strings got lost, I don't know. Oh, is that Lucy or Mina? Because there's two women in the book, and I think here they've just got one, right? I don't know if this one is supposed to be Mina or Lucy. I think Mina. Yeah, Mina. But, like, even here... Van Helsing, she's about to eat her husband. And Van Helsing runs into the frame and holds up a crucifix to repel her. But, like, they do it off camera. They they show the situation he's about to disrupt with his crucifix. They show him preparing to run into it with his crucifix. And then when he runs into it, he runs off camera. And the camera stays focused on the other dude. Like, they didn't even want to show something so, quote-unquote, violent as him thrusting a crucifix in this in, in in the direction of this woman. It's just that's just fucking boring. And I understand like if that is not if you are concerned about like oh that's gonna that's gonna look wrong. I don't know, dude, like then then change the script and do it on do something on camera. Just have these fucking people move.
Yeah, so like I guess this caretaker guy of the mental hospital is shooting shooting at bats. Oh man, my favorite—I say it's my favorite novel. It's called *Sutri* by Cormac McCarthy. I've read it twice, and both times I read it, I was like, "Oh my fucking jellickers, this is amazing!" And um, so I was telling myself at the time that it's my favorite novel. But that was like two years ago, or three? No, that's like three years ago. Last time I read it, and um, it might not—you know—I've changed a lot in the past three years. I think my aesthetics have, um, and. So I don't know if it's safe to say that Sutri is still my favorite novel, but dude, there is a section in Sutri. It's about a 40-page section having, having to do with bats. That is one of the funniest things I've ever read in my life. But, you know, I love Sutri. I, again, sure, I'll say it's my favorite, my favorite novel. Like, I am the first to admit it is 200 pages too long. But... That's the thing, like, so I don't, I never recommend it to people, because it's like, I, it's like dark chocolate. Like, you really have to, like, milk chocolate before you eat, like, you know, that 88 or 90% dark chocolate. And that's what it's like with Sutri. You really have to like Cormac McCarthy to read Sutri. Um, otherwise, it's going to be torture. But yeah, if you do get around, and not, oh, and then the bat scene is like 400 pages in, so... But dude, if you ever get around to reading Sutri by Cormac McCarthy, there's a good bat thing in there. I like impersonating Cormac McCarthy. Cormac McCarthy was interviewed by Oprah, <laughs> and it's a really awkward video. You can find it on YouTube. There's a couple. It's broken up into a few videos. Hold on. But yeah, it's um. It's cool, the interview, because, um, like, I'd never really, I've never really heard his accent. I guess it's a Tennessee accent. And, um, ne- like, often when I'm alone, I just start talking like Cormac McCarthy. Because it's, he, um, so Oprah, Oprah will be like, so, Cormac, do you like chocolate? And he'll be like, well, it, it depends how you d- define chocolate. Uh, I, I like I like milk when it's in my chocolate flavored cereal, but 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 chocolate candy no, it's not really my thing. I don't know. It's kind of like that. I think I got kind of lost in my impression there. But um, I love talking like Cormac McCarthy. I've only seen like f- ah fuck, dude. I how many vid- I've seen him in like three videos in my life. No, like five. Um. You know, I got this is a fucked up sentiment. Cormac McCarthy has written a two volume book called The Passenger, and it was supposed to come out in fucking 2015, and it has been postponed and postponed and postponed, and here we are in 2020, and it's not around. He is 86 years old, and there's a part of me that's like. First of all, we know The Passenger is done because people in his social circle have read it. And he's running it past some of his friends who are in who are scientists at the at the institute where he writes. Um, so the book is done, but like he's tinkering, I think, just tinkering endlessly. And it's not until he dies that they're going to be like, okay, publish this immediately, because like 
the last book that he fucking published was The Road. The last new novel he published was The Road in 2006. That was a massive bestseller, and like, it's been 15 years. The fir- if 15 years after The Road, you release a book and you say, oh, the, the, the huge final novel from the author of The Road, because let's face it, McCarthy is not going to publish anything else. Um, but yeah, what I was saying is kind of bad is that when I think of Cormac McCarthy's death, I'm kind of like, well, we'll get The Passenger. Oh, that's the name of the book, The Passenger. Oh, Sean Connery died today. <laughs> he says jovially. I have no... I just... It, it came to mind because we're talking about dead celebrities. So they're breaking into the crypt. I guess... I like this. This is a spooky fucking set. This underground thing where Dracula... Where we find the, the coffins of Dracula and his bride. Um, but yeah, the, you know, I mentioned the... Um, what the fuck? The, the, <laughs> I mentioned uh, Sean Connery dying. And... Um, he is one of those figures kind of like Jack Nicholson where some, sometimes I'll think of their death and I'm like, you know, that will be tragic, but when they are finally dead, it means that the story of their life is effectively over and then you can start to have people writing the story of their life. Um, so I'm kind of... It, yes, it's always inherently tragic when an older artist that you very much admire dies, but one of the things that I invariably think about is like, all right, well, you know, they've contributed what they've contributed, and now we get the life story after that. We, you know, that means a biographer gets immediately to work. Like I think I remember reading in, in publishing news about like David Bowie had a biographer like insanely, qu- you know, quick on the heels of his death. Um, someone had gotten that gig to do the big Bowie biography, which I don't know. Never looked into the fate of that. That was 2016, so I guess... I mean, conceivably... Conceivably, with a life like Bowie's, which traverses the globe and, you know, spans 45 years or 50 years, like, it is totally conceivable it will take that biographer a decade to write that book. If not more. Oh, man. Dude, if you listen to this podcast, you're going to have to hear some shit about Philip Roth because I am... Oh my god, I can't even... You know what, I don't think we got enough time for me to tell you about this. But I'm gonna try! So, uh, <laughs> I love Philip Roth, the novelist Philip Roth. Oh, this is Van Helsing staking uh, Dracula. Yep, cut to, off camera, Dracula groaning. Um, yeah, love Philip Roth, and I love the biographer Blake Bailey. And when I was in college... I read Blake Bailey's biography of the novelist John Cheever, and it was the first nonfiction book I ever read that made me cry. And I start looking into Blake Bailey, and that year, that I, I that same college semester that I finished reading that Cheever biography that made me cry, I learned that Bailey had just gotten the job to be Philip Roth's biographer. So, like, my new favorite biographer had just been hired to become the biographer of my favorite writer. And, um, at the time. And so that was like 2011. And I have been tweeting at and chatting with Blake Bailey here in the biographer here and there over those 11 years or nine years. And, um, 
he just finished the Roth biography, and I got my name on the list to receive an advanced copy once the galleys are printed. And um, the way I did that was by talking about, hey, I want to get a copy of this biography before it comes out in April. And, but um, and, and and the reason you should give it to me is because I'm going to do a three-part series on the podcast about Philip Roth. <laughs> and they were like, oh man, that sounds awesome. <laughs> That was so. That was a really bad idea. I regret. I regret that uh, bargaining chip. Um, well, the movie's over. I guess this is too. You've been listening to the Thousand Movie Project podcast. If you like what you heard, you can buy my new ebook, a collection of three personal essays and three short stories, called. My Three Repugnant Children, which is currently available on Amazon for just $1. You can also check out the blog posts that invariably work their way into this podcast script at www.thousandmovieproject.com.